Welcome to Growth Hack by Poppy Digital. Tips and tricks to master the algorithms from industry insiders. Now here's your host, Julian Espinoza. Welcome back to Growth Hack, where we break down marketing channels like Google, Facebook, Instagram, and show them how to make them work for you. Academic studies. What does that have anything to do with moving the needle in your business? Okay, bear with me here. You'll want to listen to this episode. Well, as it turns out, there's a lot of research being done in the academic field that has a lot of correlation in the business world. You may ask, why haven't we heard about it? Well, the simple answer is, who reads academic studies? People in the academic field. Business people don't read them. Therein lies the genius of this. Now, I don't expect my audience to suddenly start reading academic studies. So we brought in Neil Hine, who is an expert at looking at these studies, and he's going to share with us his best finds. Neil is Google's chief measurement officer. He has had the privilege to lead more than 2,500 engagements with the world's biggest advertisers. His efforts have helped these companies acquire millions of customers, improve conversion rates by more than 400%, and generate billions in incremental revenue. Welcome, Neil. Thanks for having me. On this show, we rarely intro people and asking them what they do, but I think what you do at Google is so unique. I really want to hear about it. So what do you do at Google? No, it, it's unique because my title also doesn't suggest anything. So um, the role the role that I really play is I like to say it's almost like a storyteller or a connector and collector of dots, which is to say, out of all the data that we're collecting, out of all the insights that companies have, how do you find any value out of it? And a lot of this is storytelling just because data on its own is, is very nebulous, very uncertain. And especially if you're not accustomed to looking at spreadsheets and models, it's almost foreign. And so a lot of what I do is just saying, look, I'm going to look at that data for you. I'm going to look at what's happening across countries, across markets. And I'm going to give you that story and lead that conversation that connects, connects really with your intuition to give you a sense as to where the market is headed next. And do you work with like internally, externally? How does that operate? All, all external. Uh, we have, Google is known for having a lot of data and people are like, imagine what I could do with Google's data. It's really none of that. A lot of the work that I do is just working with our advertisers, their data sets and saying, here's how you make the most out of that data. And the goal isn't necessarily that you need to spend more money with us. That would be great, but that's a byproduct really of first, can you use this data to grow and improve your own business? And if our products are properly positioned, then all the better uh, to help accelerate that, but it's not necessarily a requirement where we need to say, well, here's how you, you do more with paid search, for instance. So they end up with a fancy guy like you because they spend a lot of money. Is it a product that they bought? I mean, you could say fan, fancy guy. I mean, I wear a t-shirt a lot of the times. Um, but it's, it's a Silicon Valley tuxedo. I just throw a blazer on. I'm good to go. Uh, it, generally, you know, in those, in those conversations, my goal is simply to let them know what's happening outside. A lot of times when you're at a company, you know what's happening within your walls. But where are other companies finding success? And if you get the same data set as 10 other companies, you see the same thing happening in the market, what are those moments, those inflection points that lead companies to make fundamental, fundamentally different decisions, if you will, to their strategy? So we can safely say you have some knowledge of how business works. Yes, yes. At the very basic, I can do I can do business things. How deep that goes, I think we're going to find out. All right. Well, we're going to get to it. So in your opinion, what's the quickest way to move the needle for a business? The quickest way? Uh, well, I'd say first, when we, we talk about quickest way, I think that on its own is important. A lot of businesses look at this annual or quarterly planning process as being their driver for growth, which I think is ridiculous. The quickest way is what you want to focus on. How do you get that 1% or 2% growth each day in your business that can drive it forward as opposed to saying, I'm going to think about this for three or four months 
before I do anything. So it's very much a proposition to say, here's how we go to immediate action, instead of saying, here's how we spend months preparing to eventually take action. And then there's a number of different levers that we can pull on. Let's hear the levers. I mean, my, my favorite one, and this is probably grounds for a really interesting discussion if we want to have it, is uh, just what other people and other companies are doing. Now, uh, when I was leaving UCLA, which is where I went for my master's uh, more than a decade ago, I spoke to a lot of the professors and I asked them that question. I said, what's the avenue? What's the opportunity for growth? And I received a lot of fantastic advice. One of the best pieces of advice was to look at academic research. Now, I thought that was kind of funny. I said, really? Really? That's that's the secret to growth? And the professor pointed out, and she was right about this. She said that most insights that come from academia are studied in depth for three to four years at a level of rigor that most companies cannot individually invest or execute on. One study put it close to four to $500,000 of human capital per paper. Now, the only thing with it, though, is that nobody reads these papers. And she was right. She's like, how many academic papers have you read in the two years you've been here? And I was like, maybe one. And she's like, that's exactly it. In most industries, you'll be hard-pressed, apart from a research team of PhDs, to find anybody that looks through this stuff. But she said, within this is probably some of the best evidence we have about what's happening in the market, how people behave, and opportunities that aren't even worth testing, but they've already been tested, opportunities worth implementing to get that growth. But the lag is generally four to five years from when a paper is published to best case anybody in industry notices it. So you have hundreds of these insights just sitting out there waiting for you. It's just you have to get over the audience problem that the, most of these weren't written for you. They were written for other academics. It's interesting to think that your first inclination is like, go read these academic papers, because obviously you've probably discovered something that's been very interesting to talk about. So let's get into that. Sure. Um, let's. You've done the work for well, us. I've done I the work for you. Let, let, let's go through, and, and this is what I would call the teaser. I say, well, how do you get people in? It's not enough to say, read the papers. You'd be like, really? I got better things to do. It's like, say, read my book. No. So here, let's talk about some of the basics. One. Here's, what, here's one. That, let's start with a very provocative one. And, and these are kind of ones that have stuck with me for a while, not only because they're interesting, but because they've changed my perception on a number of things. And something, here's a really simple one, and most people are surprised about this, but simply having uh, currency signs, like a dollar sign in front of your prices, uh, whether we're talking about a website, whether we're talking about a menu, actually makes people more price sensitive. Now you think about this, and this is a remarkable one. Now you're going to start paying a little bit more attention to that Starbucks menu. But generally what they found is that when they did this, and they did this in a restaurant setting, they put that dollar sign in front, they actually found out that by removing the dollar sign altogether, by not conditioning people to think about the price of what they were buying, I mean, it was there, but they weren't thinking of dollars, money, they actually spent 8% more. That's it. Just simply removing a character, an individual character. Uh, other studies that were interesting, there was a study out of Stanford that said, well, how do we, uh, what about personalization? Now, we always talk about personalization. What happens if you try personalizing that email subject line? And this is a study from about three or four years ago where they found out that simply adding the person's first name, if you know it and if you've been given it, you should never use it if you were buying that from a third party. Uh, but if you were given the first name and you use that in the subject line of the email, they found out three interesting effects. It significantly improved the open rate of that email, so more than 20% improvement. It significantly improved the engagement of that email, and it also significantly reduced the number of people that unsubscribed from that email. And this was in a huge study that at Stanford, of all places, came out with. And now I want you to think next time you're looking through your inbox, 
how few companies actually use that when they optimize the content. They'll think about the dates and they'll think about the right calls to action. They don't actually get the basics right to say this is an effect that's actually been proven on audiences. You know, Neil, I think, and I definitely want to go into this idea of finding information that other people don't have access to because I, I actually have my own story for that. But going back for a second to the money sign, that is very, to your point, that is very provocative. Uh, it is a very, I, I've actually personally never heard that. But if you think about it, I think at theory, it's the same thing that happens with um, these online games that are really popular now. So as an example, if you haven't heard about it, it's Fortnite. It's probably what your kids play, uh, or you've heard that the kids play it. And it's this little game where people are shooting each other. Now, the game is actually free. So you don't have to pay for it. You can play it online. The difference is, and, and where the mechanics come in for the, for the financial side, is that you can customize your character. And the funny thing is, the customization of the character doesn't make you play the game any better. It's just the look, like the outfit, like as if we were just wearing either a t-shirt, a tank top, or a bunny outfit, like, and that's what this is in this game. It just changes your look. You don't shoot better. You're not better at anything. But what they do is they remove the money out of it. So what they do is that you have to exchange money for tokens. And then you are using tokens to buy or coins to buy this these outfits and these skins as they call them. And so I think in theory, it's the same thing. They remove the the money element out of it. And what I mean, it happens at what casinos too, right? Uh, for the slot machines, you exchange your money for a card and you are no longer putting money into the machine. You're putting a card. And as we know, plastic spends more than cash. There you go. It's just that separation. And, and people would think they'd be like, wait a minute, that's not necessarily rational and it's not designed to be. And that's why these are interesting because they get you to rethink. And here, here's another interesting one that we were actually uh, discussing earlier today is that when uh, there, there was a study that came out around research and executives and, and the basic study of was set up in this way. They, they, gave, uh, they gave executives kind of a decision. I believe the decision in the paper was market entry. And they said, you know, pretend for a moment that you're leading this company and they're thinking about whether they should enter into this market. What, what do you think? And there was just like some token pieces of information and they recorded the decision. And then what they did over the next couple of weeks, they provided information to those participants that was contrary to the decision that they made. So if they said, yes, I would go into this market, they gave them evidence to say, this is why you shouldn't. And if they said they weren't, oh, this is evidence to say why you should. And after several weeks, they came back and they asked people, all right, you've had time to evaluate the decision. You've been provided with additional data and evidence. What do you want to do? And they were surprised that more than 80, I think it was like 83% of people still kept their original decision. They were not swayed by additional data, the quality of that data. They were so set on what their original anticipation, their original prediction was until, and they found out this to be the most successful intervention prior to the experiment, they told all the participants to say, we're really looking at human biases and how humans don't consider new inputs when they make decisions. And simply being aware that that was a trait of human beings, significantly more people were willing to consider the evidence they were presented with in its, in its entirety and in fact make a different decision because of it because they felt separated. Ah, this is not me changing my mind. This is me recognizing the biases that I have. So Neil, it's really interesting in the pre-show, we talked about that if you're searching online and you're going to the front page of Google, maybe the second page of Google, you're getting the same data that everyone else is getting. And 
it's very interesting because many years ago, they think this is 2018. I'm on a call, a new discovery call with a potential client. They're selling an e-commerce product in the animal industry. And they had said, well, did you hear what Facebook was doing? I go, what, what do you mean? What, what, what's Facebook doing? Like, you didn't listen to the quarterly call on Facebook? That caught me on, off on my heels. He goes, you don't listen to the quarterly calls and you use the platform to... I'm like, well, okay, I don't know. I, I put a list together of every Facebook ad manager that ever listens to quarterly calls from Facebook. I don't think there many people would check that box. But he put me on my heels and I said, you know what? I, I'm interested. I want to... What the fuck's this guy talking about? And so I actually listened to it. What I found on that call was something called page transparency. Now, we all know page transparency today and what it is. is You can see who manages the account on any given Facebook page. Now, the interesting part for us as Facebook advertisers is this is the first time they allowed the ad library or to see all ads that this page runs. So I was probably one of the very first people on the planet because it had not even been 24 hours, that found out that we now have access to every Facebook ad that any page is running. And it goes back to this idea, Neil, that you're going to the places where people don't look, right? And people don't look at quarterly Facebook calls to listen to what they're doing. It's a different audience, right? It's meant for investors and institutional people that always want more color. I find that to be the commonality every quick. Can you give us more color on this? Oh, it's not for us. It's the same thing. Academic papers, not for us. It's meant for other academics. But you know, you always talk about companies saying, I want unique information. And they think that it's discussed in back alleys where people hand over file folders or something. I don't know. I'm not invited to those. When really it's just to say, do you have alternate methods to say, can you learn things that other people don't, that other people avoid? And how do you get that new information into your business? Give us one more. Oh, I have, I have a whole bunch. All right, I'll give you another one. But because you mentioned page transparency, we need to talk about labor transparency. And this is an interesting study. This came out of Harvard Business School, where what they were interested in saying was, I, and they used a cafeteria setting originally. And the hypothesis was that the way that food is prepared and eat, it's very disjointed, right? When you're when you go to somebody's house, you see them cook, you see them prepare for you. I used to see my mom in the kitchen making something. My dad, it's like, all right, this is great. And then you go into like a cafeteria setting, and it's your, your food is just there. Somebody brings it out to you, and it's great. And so I said, well, what if we could just try this in a simple way? Let's put an iPad at the table where people can watch their food being prepared. And then let's put an iPad in the kitchen where the chefs can watch the people who are going to be eating their food and just try to personalize the experience. And what they found out was that people reported back to say their food tasted better. Now, all right, now they thought, well, that's, that's kind of an interesting finding. But uh, then they said, well, why is that? Why would people think this way? And they ran multiple tests. And as it turns out, we do value work that's put into us. You know, you're doing something for me, that work becomes more meaningful. And we see that in different ways. There's another paper uh, that talks about what's commonly known as the Ikea effect, where in the same sense where people were building furniture, uh, in one case, they were just given the, the furniture or the item already pre-assembled. Another one, they had to sit down there with the instructions and the tools and shit. And they asked everybody at the end, how do you value your product? Like, if you want to sell it, what price would you assign? And the people that created it themselves put a higher value on that particular product, how much they wanted to sell it for. 
And so the question is, well, how does that apply to advertising, right? It's like, oh, it says we need to set up iPads so you can see the developers making the website. It was actually a little bit easier. What they started doing was they started saying, a lot of things on websites is immediate gratification. You click something, boom, it appears. And they said, what if we could give the sense of the work that's being done, right? You're not going to see the whole server farms that are coming into, and now you're going to start remembering where you saw this, is that they, they tried adding a scroll bar. And they said, we're going to have people run these requests on these websites. And instead of getting instant results, let's put a little scroll bar through and let's talk while they're waiting about all the things we're doing. We're searching for millions of flight combinations or we're searching for millions of potential partners. So the original test was done on dating and travel websites, which is why you see this on those sites. We said, and let's talk about all the work we're doing on your behalf. And what they found out was that people who waited up to 60 seconds for those results actually deemed them to be more credible and had a greater sense of loyalty and reciprocity to the website that delivered them than people that received the exact same results instantaneously. And it kind of gives you a sense. These are some of the perceptions. Now, I, I will tell you, and there's, there were questions to say, well, does this mean websites need to waste people's time? just to get it. But there's different ways that these signals and these cues can be surfaced. For instance, if somebody's buying a product from your site, I think Domino's Pizza does a great job with this. You order a pizza, it walks you through all the steps that are going, all the people involved in bringing that pizza. Like, okay, you know, so-and-so is now making your pizza. So-and-so will deliver your pizza to show the work that's happening. Some retailer websites, we're going to show you the steps of all the way from sourcing to producing the product that you're asking for. When you go to Google search results, what you think it tells you with how, with how well Google optimizes every pixel of their site, why do you think they waste time to be like, we searched 8 trillion pages for you? Those are all hints to consumers about the work that is being done on their behalf, triggering this type of effect. Where a lot of people think, no, it's just the fastest results always win. There's always a little bit more of that human subtlety in between. You brought up an interesting point from a software side. Um, I, I ran into a guy many years ago where his website, you'd plug in an Instagram profile. It would suss out all the fake Instagram profiles. And so it would scan someone's profile and it would determine based on some algorithm that either these profiles were real or not real. And his server was so fast and his algorithm was so fast, it would happen within like, a second or two. And what was happening is people, because it was a new brand at the time, people didn't believe that the tool was accurate. So what he did was he instead putting loading bar and said, scanning profiles, just that simple. And he made the system delay by eight seconds. And then suddenly people trusted it. So I've seen real world evidence of this fact. This is, this is kind of the thing is that it's this intersection oftentimes of how we behave as human beings, things we observe firsthand, and then how we translate it to digital. And I'm surprised as to how many companies miss that digital step, reducing consumer behavior down to a very specific funnel as quickly as possible. You know, it's like, no, it's like you go to a retail store, you're out of a product. Do you have any more left? You're either going to get, no, they're all out there where you're like, oh, thanks for nothing. Or hold on, let me go check in the back. Yeah, they're probably not checking. They're going to go out there. And yeah, they're, they're checking their, their texts, uh, their, their texts or their emails. And they come back, they're still out of stock. You had to wait for the same result, but you say, hey, that's credible. Thank you for spending your time. I like this store. Now, I want to ask you a question. 
all these little bits and bites. Have you consolidated this yet? I, I consolidated them. In, in the, the, the book that I just published, uh, Converted, I, I use a lot of them because I find them to be powerful devices in terms of storytelling. If I came to you and I said, hey, uh, I think your website should have a loading bar, you'd be like, get the hell out. Like, who is this guy? If I come and I say, look, I can provide you with the evidence of this. Uh, and the same thing with the book itself. There's a, a toolkit, uh, book URLs, convertedbook.com. There's a toolkit where I just, I kind of keep links to these research pieces just because they're fun to post. I also put them on LinkedIn. And, and if nothing else, I enjoy the conversation because you see how much time went into it. And when you start thinking about it, that's what's fun about these these stories and these insights. The papers themselves are not that memorable. Like you read it and it's a slog. It hurts your head. You throw it away and you're like, I never want to do this again. But then you hear the story and you say, is this really what they found that people like to wait? Or um, here's here's another good one. Uh, so generally, and this is known about product pricing, people hate making choices between extreme options, right? Do I want the, the most expensive product or the cheaper product? And so what the research found, not surprisingly, is by having a middle option, right? Most people will buy that. So Apple and the iPhones, I think this was the original study, uh, they said when Apple, actually, they originally had, I think they had like a, um, this is like when small storage spaces were in vogue. It was like a 32 gigabyte version of an iPhone or a 256 gigabyte version of the iPhone. And it made it really hard for consumers to figure it out. Now, when they released 128 gigabytes, it's not objectively that anybody knew how much storage space they wanted, but nearly 70% of people just bought that option. But there's also a second part to it what were the other 30% of the customers doing? And there was a question to say, were there one in three people, were they effectively immune from picking those, those extremes? And what they found out was there was another interesting part of consumer behavior, which is that when consumers buy products, they also have this desire for uniqueness. They also like to be different. And so what they did was they replicated this and they used small kids, hopefully with parental consent, and, and they gave them, and they just tried to keep it easy. They gave them, they gave them can boxes of candy, right? And they just three generic white colored boxes. And they were just kind of curious, like if presented, would kids choose the middle box? And it was only about 25, 26% of kids that chose the middle box. And that was like the least interesting finding ever. That's what happened. When they changed them to color boxes, nearly 50% of kids now chose the middle box. Which was really bizarre. So then they said, "All right, let's let's kids are kids are crazy. Let's go with adults." And so they did. They did a sushi display. <laughs> they said, "There's a sushi display where you have all your options." And and there there was there was no colors or anything. They weren't doing any trickery. And they found that you know like 65 percent of people chose the sushi in the middle. And they're like, "Well, what happens if we we put different colors underneath the sushi? Like little just different pieces of paper." And it improved the people that went to the middle. I think it went up to like 85%. Now let's go back to what we originally had. So when Apple originally had it, what did we talk about? We said, all right, 70% of people chose the middle option, right? It was like 68% of people chose the middle 128 gigabyte iPhone. Then Apple all of a sudden releases colors for their iPhone. So you not only get to pick the size, but also the color. And the number of people that picked the middle option went up to north of 80%. Because not only could they make that compromise effect, pick the middle choice like everyone else, but they found that second aspect was they were able to express themselves and their uniqueness. And so sometimes it's not only how you present your options, what choices you offer to consumers, but also giving them a toggle. 
an option, whether it's personalizing their iPhone, selecting a color of their iPhone, but they feel like they have some choice in the process by which they can express themselves and their uniqueness. So it's in your book. Um, we've got some great, great things in that book. Where where do people access this book? How do we get a hold of it? So the, the, look, you can go, obviously, the book website, convertedbook.com. will have information about the book, excerpts, toolkits. Honestly, the easiest way is head over to Amazon. Uh, you're going to find it there. You're going to find it a lot of local bookshops. Even someone sent me a picture. Someone saw it at Newark Airport. Bright yellow book with converted on the cover. That's where you're going to find it. Um, and the, the thing to highlight it with it as well, um, all the, the proceeds uh, of the book are going to charity anyway. So it's all going. So you get you get some information in your brain, some food uh, in other people's stomachs, uh, which I think is a wonderful proposition. But really, I hope it makes everyone interested in a lot of the academic research that's out there and just how simple and compelling it can be with the right story. Amazing. And then um, is it on Amazon as well? It is. We'll have it in the show notes uh, that you can uh, click to the website and buy the book. All right, Neil, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm sure we'll have you back soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.